2: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is an episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today, I have Mark Winnie on the phone with me, and uh, welcome to the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Mark blogs regularly on his website, markwinnie.com. He's the author of Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty, published by Beacon Press in 2008. Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cooking Mamas Fighting Back in an Age of Industrial Agriculture, also published by Beacon Press in 2010, Stand Together or Starve Alone, Unity and Chaos in the U.S. Food Movement, published by Prager Press in 2018, as well as Foodtown USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat by Island Press in 2019, which is the book that we will be discussing today. Mark now lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He holds a bachelor's degree from Bates College and a master's degree from Southern New Hampshire University. Well, uh, again, thank you for uh, thank you for being on our show. And uh, could you tell me a little bit about how you came to writing Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat?
1: Yes. Uh, well, I've been in the food business and the food world uh, as a food activist, a community food activist, meaning that I'm – most of my work has been at a local level or state level um, for my entire career, my entire adult life, which you just heard a little bit of, and um, you know, I just over the course of working very closely in a very hands-on way in everything from low-income neighborhoods to rural communities to um, urban areas. Uh, working with farmers, working with food businesses, working with a number of people that just get very inspired and active in the food world uh, in many different ways. It just all kind of came together at a certain moment that said, you know, people seem to have this desire, this fire in the belly to do something about food. And as they're doing it, they're also doing something about their communities, They're not just feeding themselves and others, they're providing a variety of other s- services, sometimes direct, sometimes indirect. But they're they're consider they're looking at the health impact, the economic development effect. Um, they're even addressing issues around race and climate change. In some cases, I even found uh, how food makes a difference when it comes to the opioid epidemic that we have now in the U.S. So I've always viewed the world i guess um you know ever since I got into this as a professional as a food system it is we are working on the food system we're not working so much on individual food projects um, we are working on this big, complicated uh network from that goes from seed to table and uh has all these like spider crack kinds of uh directions and trajectories that go off in different directions and connect to just about every facet of our lives so I wanted to bring that together but I wanted to tell the story in a way that was very direct and immediate and related to towns the specific places in this case I chose seven cities and I also wanted to tell the story from the point of view of places that weren't on the so-called foodie radar in other words Uh, We all sort of associate places like, say, Berkeley and Brooklyn and Boulder uh, as sort of hot spots when it comes to the food movement. But my point really was that the food movement has taken root everywhere, even in towns that you maybe never heard of or never thought of as having anything robust or exciting going on. And my, my research, my research took me to those seven places. And indeed, I found that a lot was going on. Maybe not on the same scale as Brooklyn or Boulder or Berkeley, but you had all of the elements that you'd find in those other places. And you had an, a, a, a concept, a, a working, a working concept around the idea of a food system. And so I just felt that you know we the food movement has come so far, and the way that we say that it has come so far, the way that we demonstrate that is by looking at places that are just off the grid, so to speak, when it comes to food.
2: Excellent. And what purpose did this food play in in some of these cities? Uh, I, I would like just uh, maybe a, a glimpse into some of these different cities and some of the, some of the major uh, purposes the, that the food played because food is, is only part of the story. I think the larger uh, discussion in your book and uh, in your research is uh, the community that is built from this framework of food.
1: Right. I mean, I take the position that, you know, food is community and community is food. I mean, that they're really inseparable, but there's a tremendous amount of synergy. Maybe I should just identify the seven cities because people, that's always the first question everybody asks me when I give them the 30-second elevator speech about this book. But uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Alexandria, Louisiana, Boise, Idaho, Sitka, Alaska, Youngstown, Ohio, Jacksonville, Florida, and Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine perhaps being the only one that maybe people in the Northeast anyway recognize as having a fairly high food profile. But the others, for the most part, are everything from rural to larger cities to being in the South, uh, areas that are sometimes surrounded by um, you know more industrial forms of agriculture, uh, places that have their own unique challenges as well. So, you know, in in each of those places, I found that, you know, food was playing a role that was not what we might think about. You know, for instance, um, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, you have a city that was virtually annihilated, that was brought to its knees when the closing of its iconic steel industry in the 1990s, uh, throwing tens of thousands of people out of work basically i erasing the identity of a city that had um been in place for you know well over 100 years and so the, the people there were kind of faced with that with the question about how do we reinvent ourselves how do we what kind of new identity are we going to have just how are we going to even survive frankly uh when something this vast and uh, that was that identified, and, and basically, this was the label that Bethlehem had. Bethlehem Steel. So, food became one part of that answer, one part of a way to sort of rebuild a place. Now, it wasn't in a sort of dramatic fashion of you know attracting some sort of you know dot com enterprise, you know where you you know would expect lots of highly paid professionals to be moving to a city. There were lots of you know not there were no big home runs, but there were a lot of singles that uh, occurred as a result of starting to pay attention to restaurants, paying attention to farmers' markets uh, even even things as sort of mundane as gardens and community gardens, uh, even a, a food uh, business incubator so that new business enterprises that were um, creating new uh um, yeah just creating uh new t- taking food from various processed forms and packaging it and branding it and and in often food that was produced organically that had high value, so you know in- increasingly we saw that we saw that food was beginning to make an economic having an economic impact <clears throat> you know one thing that uh has Sort of slowly emerged and has finally been documented over the years is that the local food movement, meaning that food that has some identity as being purchased within a defined area, usually, you know, within perhaps no more than a couple hundred miles from a specific place, that the value of that has increased dramatically over the last 20 years. There was a study done by the Federal Reserve in, um, it was published in 2016 or 2015, uh, that showed that the value of what we call local food was about $400 million nationally in the early 90s. But in 2015, when they gathered in their data, uh, it was, it was up to about 12 or 13 million, a billion, excuse me, and projected to go to 20 billion by 2020. And it probably is at that now and will even, you know, will far exceed that number. There's a lot of excitement around food. There's a lot of, you know, it's not just, this isn't just your mother's home cooking anymore. This is, you know, many, many different kinds of restaurants. So even in a place like Bethlehem, which is not a big city at all, you could find 50 different ethnic restaurants in one part of the city in the area, in the part of the city that was most dramatically impacted by the closing of Bethlehem Steel and you know that combined with um a community college that had just developed a culinary program and also developed a its own farm on the, its campus you know was the kind of response that the community had said how do we support ourselves um, it, it, you know through different through different types of inner enterprises um, including you know the public sector as well as the private sector for profit and profit uh, a charter uh, a, a, a charter school dedicated to the arts was also brought into downtown Bethlehem as part of the revitalization process. And interestingly enough, they decided that they wanted their 600 students to do what they could to support some of these small food businesses. So as a result of doing that, they don't have a cafeteria. Kids don't eat lunch. They can bring their food in and eat lunch in school, but there's no cafeteria that produces food. And so these kids are out. During lunchtime, uh, getting food from local restaurants, their parents are coming in and their friends and so forth ninety times a year for performances put on by the students, and those people are eating out at those restaurants as part of their night out. So you can see the kind of synergy that exists, and when you're when you're thoughtful about and thoughtful and you're inten- intentional about how you look at the different parts of the food system, and how they can contribute to one um one need which in Bethlehem's case was economic development um and I, I found it, it I mean perhaps um Bethlehem was the most dramatic example of that but I saw how food was making a difference economically and and the quality of life I mean it's an interesting term that we often use quality of life and I think everybody might define it a little bit differently but um you can you sort of know it when it's there, <laughs> yes. and then you certainly are aware of it when it's taken away, when you go to a different place that just doesn't have perhaps the same level of quality of life that you experienced before. That can mean good restaurants. It means good coffee. It means good beer. It means perhaps sometimes locally, locally uh, produced wine, even distilleries. All these things are making are coming onto the food scene in a very dramatic way. And again, they're they're happening all across the country. I I saw this you know, the quality of life issue became very interesting in a um, this little place called Alexandria, Louisiana, where uh, which is in one of the poorer parts of the country, central Louisiana, has some of the you know, grimmest numbers when it comes to poverty, uh, hunger and food insecurity, obesity, yet, you know, the Economic Development Agency that is working in that region recognized that food was going to make a big contribution uh, to that com- that community's economy, but that it they wanted to also attract professionals, you know, people who were used to you know getting um you know a good cup of coffee or a microbrew or eating out at a farm to table restaurant and that in order to attract those kinds of employees to the businesses that they wanted to attract they also had to raise the you know the quality of the food scene so recognizing that that you know that quality of life was going to attract and ho- and retain high quality workers which then would provide additional, you know, financial revenues and so forth to that larger community, you know, it becomes a sort of self-reinforcing uh, effort that where food is a very, plays a pivotal role throughout. And it, it really goes on and on from there. And then, of course, the story isn't always about, um, you know, it's not always about uh, get it, being able to get a great, you know, IPA. Uh, that's not what I'm you know setting out to say that the world needs more of necessarily um all these towns in addition to you know trying to elevate the quality of their respective food scenes we're also doing something that i refer to as taking care of their own They're how do we how do we make sure that everybody is benefiting now everybody benefiting may mean that we want to make sure that everybody is eating well um eating healthfully and so I also spotlight the work of food banks and how farmers' markets, which are growing almost exponentially across the country, are also making sure that they can accommodate lower income consumers um, and that's being done in many different ways, and I talk about that throughout the book. Um, so you know every community is is being intentional, they're being thoughtful about. Their respective food systems, but they're doing it from a, from sort of what you might call everything from the high end to the high and the highbrow, to the to the areas where we're making sure that everybody is going to be eating well and eating healthfully. And so I'll pause of, for a moment.
2: Yes, yeah, so one of the interesting things that uh, I found in my research is uh it's, it's sometimes difficult in modern society to d- distinguish even between highbrow and lowbrow with omnivorous behavior of the general population of these food markets that are that are uh or attempt to be all inclusive and did you find mm-hmm. that about some of the different uh farmers' markets as well as restaurants that provided food in these food cities
1: that they were all inclusive
2: all inclusive yes, that it brought community yeah. together rather than divided them.
1: Yeah, I mean I think there's always like a certain tension. I mean they ever since I've been involved with farmers markets since the get-go since the 1970s and um you know they've always been criticized for for being elitist, you know, that they're they're selling local organic uh you know arugula and only sort of high-end clientele can afford to buy it or even wants it. Um and I, I think that that's off. That's clearly been overstated time and again. I mean, occasionally you'll might find some truth to it, but I think that overall the spirit in farmers' markets and many many other outlets for locally produced food um, is very is vastly different. And the people they really care. They really want everybody to participate. They want that inclusivity. Do they always achieve it? No, not a hundred percent. But I would maintain that the uh, they are taking um, you know a very sincere very authentic approach to trying to address that need i mean the thing that you see the, the one uh, the, w- the best example of that is a program that is federally supported and it's also it's actually also privately supported as well started out privately supported which provides additional incentives to um people using food stamps to shop at farmers' markets, so that if someone buys, um, you know, ten dollars worth of produce with their uh, food stamps, they will get an additional ten dollars worth of benefits, meaning a ten dollars of additional produce. Um, and that there's many variations on that theme, but the idea of providing an incentive and an opportunity as well, an extra value for lower income shoppers to participate and you know like anybody else in these markets i think is a it has become a very dominant and very very well very prevalent part of the farmers market scene these days um you see it in other forms I mean, even the fact that communities will say you know, we just don't have enough local food in our community and we're also at risk because we're so far away in mean, My best example of that in my book is Sitka, Alaska, which is a very unusual place, but it also in some ways kind of heightens that sense of tension around what the future might look like. We might want to pay attention to Sitka as a place that is about a thousand miles from uh, Seattle and where food can only come in by barge or by air, and there's no roads into Sitka. And because of the climate and the topography, very difficult to grow food. Yet the community came together in that case and put up money and resource, other resources to try to create places where um, food could be grown and made available through a, a farmer's market and through other outlets as well. So they were, again, they were very, you know, they were paying attention to the fact that, you know, their food security was at risk. And they had to be proactive in order to address it um, that you know both in the immediate immediately as well as you know looking ahead at the future um, it, in the same regard, you're finding communities pay more attention to climate change um and the, what the impact of climate change can be on food security and you know that's long overdue, I think, as we know, but in Jacksonville, Florida, I certainly have found. At a place that is, you know, surrounded by water for the most part has been, you know, devastating floods from two different hurricanes over the past five years are beginning to take steps to not only address their vulnerability to um, climate change, but uh, doing more with respect to food, actually, you know, more, more places to produce food, more distribution, uh, outlets, uh, more emergency planning. Food bank, the big food bank for the area, for instance, is looking at you know what is going to happen when the roads and the highways and the bridges are cut off by a hurricane, trucks can't get through. What are we going to do? You know, do we have enough food um, in our warehouses and our storage facilities to be able to last for you know two weeks, three weeks, a month? Uh, or not, and they're finding they're always coming up short, but at least they are now planning you know they are now looking at climate change is now on the radar of people who are paying attention to our food system,
2: and uh, as you explored this, uh, was there anything new that you uh, uh, that you came across that uh, was just extremely enlightening uh, to you and uh, and of course, as you wrote it in your book as you wrote some of this stuff in your book. Uh, that you want to get out to the general public?
1: A couple of things were really intriguing and um, that I was always aware of, at least in in some fashion, but not to the extent that I became aware of it when I waded into these different places. Um, I guess I call it the role of the individual um, and how important certain individuals are in moving The process along and while I'm I've always been more of a you know let's do this as a group let's do this as a community let's all come together that there's yes we have leaders but we don't you know there's no one person who's you know the leader the charismatic leader there's you know we're all in this working we all have responsibility and while I still believe that I find that you know the role of individuals in all these communities was what made the difference. Somebody would get up and say, "We have to do something," or somebody would get up and say, "I have to do something," um, or they'd point the finger at somebody else and say, "They have to do it." So it's it you find this especially with I think the number of new food businesses that are coming online every day. You know whether it's somebody who's had a dream of. You know opening up um, a small chain of food retail outlets in um, this in a in an area I found this in portland, maine uh, uh, they're called the Rosemont markets. There's six of them and um, you know they were um, they were opened up over the last I think, ten to fifteen years and they're beautiful little markets um, you know the one guy. Whose name suddenly I can't remember <laughs> as I'm trying to talk about this um, uh, had started started these markets um, and he specializes in, in in food from the from the region first from Maine and then from uh, New England and the Northeast, depending on what's available um, but you know he was a hard-driving entrepreneur but he looked at and he was a bottom line you know for-profit, capitalist all the way but I guess I refer to him as sort of a community supported capitalist as a person who really looks at you know what are all the issues around you know the food that he's buying you know he wants to support the community he wants to support the farmers he wants every every Accounting service he requires, computer IT service, any, um, electrical service he needs for his stores, he's always getting them from local vendors. Um, he's looking at how he can support charities. Uh, he's looking at how he can support sustainability. So it's that kind of, you know, I guess it's capitalism with a conscience. Conscience is the other way to think about that. But, It was still that individual, this one guy who stood up and said, this is the way I want to do it and I'm going to try to make this work as a business. And I just found dozens of people like this. And the other thing that was interesting and a a bit of an eye opener is the way that these folks support each other. They're not cutthroat capitalists. They're not out there to like be the top dog, you know, beat all the competition into the dust. You know, they're there. If they basically take a completely different point of view, they say, you know, we're all in this together. You know, if there's, you know, if there's a, uh, somebody who wants to open up a cafe, somebody who wants to be a, have a coffee, be a coffee roaster. Somebody else has a new line of, of, of honey and, uh, olives and other products that they want to bring online. You know, we all want to support each other and make sure that we all make it. You know, if one of them fails, they feel like we've all failed. So it's that level of mutual support, which is making a difference. I mean, it's a, in a way, it's a great business model because I don't have to be out there completely on my own. I can have other people with their own businesses who are, you know, driven to be successful just like I am. But we can support each other rather than beat each other up in the marketplace. So it was that kind of of... Uh, of you know sort of a self-styled community capitalism um you know which i found very exciting but e- even outside of that sort of that say for-profit business side you find people who are the social entrepreneurs who have started um amazing food banks for instance they've started uh policy initiatives uh to try to you know make Better food available to more people um, there's there's numerous examples of individuals who've stood up with a great idea and a lot of enthusiasm and the desire to make things better um, It's almost as if the you know the 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 lines between for profit and non profit have been blurred almost to the point where sometimes they didn't make any difference at all. Of course, it makes a difference when it comes to filing your tax return and you know, your relationship to the IRS. <clears throat> but, you know, when it comes to the actual practice, I mean, people, a, a guy who was the head chef at the largest homeless shelter in Jacksonville, uh, decided to start his own bakery with his wife in Jacksonville at the same time that he is the uh, president of the slow food chapter in Jacksonville. So people are wearing different hats all the time you know, with, with the basic idea that we're all going to succeed and this community is going to become a better
0: place. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: In Bethlehem, one of the things that uh, really stood out to me is the opportunity that they saw some of the old dilapidated infrastructure as being, turning it into a place where people could go get food instead of continuing to let, uh, let the infrastructure deteriorate. Uh, since it uh did change with the uh loss of their steel industry,
1: yeah, I mean it was both food and arts I mean I want to yes. sort of make that clear I mean arts was a sort of a beginning point um actually actually a casino was <laughs> beginning point, but I would say it was one of the more innovative casinos i've ever seen um you know, where they made good food a part of what they were doing. They incorporated the arts and they also incorporate, uh, they, they be, well, not just the casino, but other aspects of the Renaissance of Bethlehem, you know, incorporated the, the, um, you might say the remains, the sort of it's almost prehistoric in the way that they, they present themselves to the, you know, first time visitor coming to Bethlehem. It, it seems like a place out of some, I don't know William, William Blake poem um, in terms of how austere and almost like these relics of the of the industrial past are incorporated into new designs into the into the buildings into the community and the neighborhoods um, you know both to remind you and to instruct you but also because they have a certain aesthetic quality as well I thought that was quite original um, as I. As I went around, um, older buildings that are 100 to 200 years old were repurposed, sometimes for arts spaces, schools, um, uh, walk, uh, community uh, trails um, along along the railroad tracks, and so forth, right through the middle of the city, uh, were opened up. It's you know it's urban design, you know urban design. That is, you know, doesn't destroy the past. It, it tries to figure out how it can incorporate the past into something new and exciting. <clears throat> um, and also bring food and the arts into that space because they know that that has an economic impact. It's going to draw people to this place uh, and it's going to re- improve the quality of life for everybody. Um, in the story, it's, you know it's these stories are complicated in a way there's many different moving parts but the but clearly there is this dynamic between food and many all the aspects of community i mean simply again I mean just an example in how institutions can make a difference um large uh universities for instance and and hospitals um again i saw this I saw it in all the cities with the role of institutions. But again, in uh, Bethlehem, you have Lehigh University, which is right on kind of the south side of the city, sitting way up on this giant hill. Um, For many years, as Bethlehem slid downhill in terms of its social and economic status and quality of life, Lehigh sort of built literally, kind of figurative, guess figuratively, a wall between itself and the city, you know, sort of that town down divide. What it recognized is this is the wrong direction. This is not going to be helpful to anybody. So they opened it up. It was almost as if somehow a, a, a quiet, quieter equivalent of tearing down the Berlin Wall between the university and the town uh which allowed for a free flow of people between both sides. Which but also I mean the benef- beneficiary clearly was the community because students and faculty would come in and start to be a part of that the rest of that community, which also provided additional demand for good restaurants, brew pubs, distilleries, uh, etc. et cetera. But also brought students into providing, you know, helpful and necessary services to um Lower income people in that community, so again you know the, the synergy between you know big you know big institutions, powerful, usually wealthy institutions, and communities in need is an important consideration in all of this.
2: Could you t- uh, talk a little bit about your experience as you walked into the field? Uh, oftentimes uh, people who uh, go out and conduct part- participate observation. Uh, are, uh, are extremely vulnerable as they go out into these communities, not knowing necessarily whether the uh, community is going to be welcoming or whether they're going to be rejected. You were a stranger in many of these communities, so what was your experience?
1: I always find the first thing I do is like I get, get, sort of get permission, you might say, to come in. Um, I usually find somebody who is influential, um, somebody who's already well-respected in the community. Um, without that person, usually, usually it's one, sometimes there's two or three, but without that person, I'm, I am in that very vulnerable position. But when they, um, when they, um, you know, invite me in and they connect me to these people, to all these people that I interview, I mean, I, I think of all the people that I was referred to, and I, I interviewed over a hundred people for this book, um, I think all but all people everyone accepted my request for an interview with the exception of one or two people and um, I think that was simply a, the result of the the starting point that that one person that that sort of gateway the gatekeeper you might say who allowed me into the community now i I will say that i've been in as i said i've been in the food movement my entire professional life so and i've tra- and I've traveled around a lot i've been to a lot of places and i've and I have written um, uh, books and articles. So I'm not unknown, and uh, I often know people in these places. Um, so I would reach out to somebody that I knew usually um, who turned out to be the right person or at least would connect me to the right person. And that's how I, That's how I was able to come in and, and be a part, um, to be able to, Listen and learn sometimes I even was invited to um, conduct a workshop. um I also found that focus groups were a great way to have conversations about the food system that brought people together um really sparked each other's imaginations and um in addition to finding out a, something about a place that I wouldn't ever know and then i often found out that people who lived there didn't know about a lot of these things uh until they were listening to other people in a focus group and they learned from each other um one of my one of my uh, favorite examples or stories perhaps was in jacksonville florida where we did a uh, i did a focus group and uh, an african american chef whose name is uh, chef amadeus um was was speaking about the different types of food scenes around Jacksonville, and he was sort of bemoaning the fact that um, the African American community, which is very large in Jacksonville, didn't get the same attention as the the white generally white owned restaurants um, that were taking off and causing a lot of stir and a lot of excitement. Nobody was getting excited about the african American restaurants. In fact, they were sometimes labeled as those hole in the wall places um hole in the wall became sort of a euphemism for some kind of something that was usually owned by an african American and somehow the you know the cuisine was not up to snuff when it came to you know white taste buds um, so he wanted to tear those walls down so as a result, I said, all right." Jeff, I'm, I'd like. To, could you take me around and show me these places and tell me exactly what you're talking about and introduce me to the owners? Let me try the food. And you know, I'm here. I'm going to be a sponge, and I'm just going to soak it up. And you're going to be my mentor. And he did it. He did it willingly. And um, I got to see things that really I don't think a lot of white folks would be able to see um, if I hadn't had you know that kind of um, that person, that special. You know, like that Beatrice sort of guide who or Virgil who could take me to places that I wouldn't otherwise even know about and probably not be welcomed in.
2: That was one of the joys of uh, reading your book and and, uh, those experiences that you had. I think you had a similar experience in Bethlehem. Pennsylvania uh with a farmer uh, with the farmer's market or a farmer's stand uh where there was uh once a massacre that occurred on that same land where you're at
1: oh that was in Alexandria
2: that was in Alexandria
1: Louisiana yes, right? yes. yeah yes. yeah that was rather that was I still gives me chills when I think about a town of this little town just outside of Alexandria called Colfax and there was a farmer's market. Um, about half the vendors were white and half the vendors were black. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And, um, you know, I the story behind it of how folks in that community decide to come together and break down some of the racial divides that had existed forever, um, hundreds of years, and start a farmer's market because the community needed good food. They needed good locally produced food. And then I... Then I found this road sign that referred to something called the Colfax Massacre, where um, at least 150 black people were killed by um, the sort of the earliest what would be considered white supremacists uh, today, uh, who were basically the the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan uh, in 1870. This was 1873. And the story behind it is just grisly and horrible um but you know these were free blacks who were trying to um, maintain law and order, and they were gunned down uh, by by a rather savage group of white supremacists in eighteen seventy three and it actually became the test case uh, for um Supreme Court rulings, which would basically undo. All of the advances that had been made by the Civil War and the Reconstruction era and let, and basically was the beginning of the Jim Crow era in the South. So all that history (laughs) came came flooding at me, Um, gruesome as it was, but seeing this little ray of light, you might say, in this little farmer's market where black and white were coming together and trying to help each other and to also resolve some of these you know, these, these horrible injustices from the past in their own backyard.
2: And these places are ever changing. Uh, one of the questions that I had listed, uh, in my outline today is, uh, have any of these cities, have any, has any of the people in these different places contacted you and continued to tell you the narratives of their stories because, uh, there's no way for you to capture everything. During the time of which you're sitting in these, standing, walking around in these cities to to capture the whole story.
1: Uh, occasionally, I've had some of that. I've, um, it was part of the the really the task of trying to take all of my you know, hundreds of pages of notes and in hours and hours of interview and put them into some kind of cogent narrative. You know, overwhelmed my ability to stay in touch with people. <laughs> so, I uh, what I'm doing now is the book is is going to be, re- you know, Food Town USA is going to be re- released October 1st and I'm in the process of reaching out to all seven cities and some of my key contacts to arrange a visit and do a so, do some kind of book event and uh, and get updates too. I would I would do, I could do nothing but get updates. I would be, I would be not able to do anything else. I wouldn't be able to earn a living. I wouldn't be able to, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to contribute in any other way if I tried to stay uh, in touch with <clears throat> and up to date with everything that's going on. I did discover one thing recently. This was just the other day is in Jacksonville, Florida, where I referred to as being a I'd say on the, you know, the, the cutting edge of climate change. I mean, they are, they are the front line. They're going to be, you know, they sit on the sea where uh, a very small rise in sea levels will, could easily wipe out a better part of the city. And I discovered that one of the, a very Tony neighborhood along the uh, St. John River, uh, which had been flooded in the last hurricane, all of their houses are now vacant. And these are very these were uh, expensive real expensive pieces of real estate have been bought out and um, will never be developed again because this area, which was once a neighborhood, is now considered a floodplain um, and at such high risk that no one is going to build there. Um, and I hear about you know I hear about people who people in other communities that have started new businesses and other people who have sometimes businesses don't succeed or nonprofit organizations succeed for a while and then they fail or they merge with others. It's a very dynamic field and it's hard to keep up with. Uh, but what I do get clearly is that, you know, there's, there's growth, there's continued growth in trying to bring in new areas, new food projects, new food initiatives, whether they're for profit or nonprofit. And maybe the, The best news, and I I try to tell in the book, is that people are working together. You know, they're not doing this on their own. It's not like, oh, I have the – it's not like someone's coming along and saying, I have the best idea for the greatest new food project, and it's going to solve everybody's problems. It's going to feed a hungry world. We're not seeing that much of that anymore. We're seeing people deciding in a more coordinated and collaborative fashion that they can – Uh, use food if they work together to solve a number of other problems
2: well thank you for your time today Uh, unfortunately we are uh, coming near the end of our interview but one question that I'd like to close with is what are you working on now the what is your next step after uh, getting this book published and uh, your book tour Uh, do you have any new projects that are coming up
1: Selling this book is probably, you know, what authors today. Even though I have I have a great press, which is Island Press, and I'm very fortunate to be working with them. But um, in today's world and marketplace, you have to hustle, no matter what your book is, to uh, for it to, to get out there. Uh, so that's going to consume a lot of my time. Um, you know, I'm looking ahead. I have other ideas for book projects. I, I'm always floating around with different things. Um, I. I had so much fun doing this book that the idea of doing, you know, Food Town USA volume two has come to mind so I could go find another seven cities. Um, I I feel like I could probably do this forever. Um, so that, that, that's an idea that is percolating. Um, I'm very active. I still, I'm still active with, uh, Johns Hopkins, um, university with the uh, Center for a livable future where I work on food policy issues you know my interest has always been in how I can support communities to help themselves and the work that we're doing at Johns Hopkins um does that it's really about how do we help communities how do we give communi- communities the tools they need to help themselves you know in the same way that I this book I think contributes to that goal uh, to that purpose I think the work we're, I've been doing at Johns Hopkins does so as well so I'll, I will continue to be looking for those kinds of opportunities as time goes on.
2: Thank you for being on uh, New Books and Sociology and I look forward to continuing to follow your, uh, your success and to uh, read additional publications that you put out there whether it be in form of policy uh, briefs or whether it be in the form of uh, new books maybe uh, okay. there will be a time that I can have you on the show for Food, Tune, uh, Food Town USA version 2
1: <laughs> let's hope so thank you Michael I really appreciate it
2: thank you and this has been an episode of New Books and Sociology a channel on New Books Network have a great day